1: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan
2: Hello, my name is Dr. Francesco Isolani. I'm a medical doctor, a trauma anesthesiologist, and a student of the history of alcohol, drugs, and intoxicants. This is my first interview for the New Books Network, and I'm talking to Professor Lisa Gazan. Dr. Gazan is a professor of anthropology at the University of West Georgia. The title of her book is Drug Effects, Shot in a Biocultural and Socioeconomic Perspective. It's part of the Advances in Critical Medical Anthropology series. How do you pronounce... Cot or Chot, or what is the how did you learn to pronounce it?
0: I pronounce it Cot. The British tend to pronounce it
2: Cat. Cat. Okay. So the full title of the book is Drug Effects Caught in Biocultural and Socioeconomic Perspective. Uh, and I uh, enjoyed the book and uh, I found it. It's, you're very smart, and you know a lot about the subject you're talking about. Um, yeah. And it's a it's a very wide ranging subject because it. Uh, part of the reason I enjoyed the book is because you covered the pharmacology and the economics and the medical and the um, just lots of different perspectives. But how would you describe the book to somebody who hasn't read it?
0: Describe the book to somebody. I would say it's looking at cot as a drug from multiple perspectives, looking at it from a cultural perspective, which is really my discipline in cultural anthropology, as well as uh, looking at it from a pharmacological perspective, which actually in a holistic anthropological context makes a lot of sense as anthropologists we consider ourselves holistic which means that there's a lot of different perspectives that matter in order to understand something, so I try to understand the history of it and look at the pharmacological debates because ultimately it is a medical question involved here. It's not just a social cult question, it's not just a cultural question or economic or anything. But there's also at heart of the question is what is this doing to people's bodies? And I think medical anthropology does a really good job of bringing in the actual the medical side to questions of what is the overall effect of of any kind of illness or disease in society we have to really look at everything together for it to make sense in a holistic way so anyway so if you want me to keep going on that then uh what i what i do is um try to understand it, again, historically, economically, because cot plays an important role in society economically. So the, the people in Madagascar themselves, they kind of helped me frame my question, actually. When I went to Madagascar, I wasn't planning on looking at cot. I was planning on looking at questions of forest use and land cover change. And so I went into a particular area to study land cover change, and I realized that the biggest change that was happening was related to Uh, the production of cots. So,
2: um, I'm sorry, what's forest use?
0: Forest. Oh, forest
2: forest use and land cover change. Yeah, like deforestation. Right,
0: deforestation issues and land cover change.
2: Uh Uh-huh, okay.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, and when I then when I became interested in understanding cot and its role in deforestation and forest use, I realized that I was opening up a lot, much larger can of worms, and that I had to really look at it from this larger medical perspective. Uh, uh, it was that
2: was one of the things that, like I said, I just really appreciated. Um, it's oftentimes. Uh, you see the subject of drugs or um, medicines or intoxicants approached at from a a very sort of monolithic very narrow and culturally bound way um, and you know phrase it framed in terms of good or bad or legal or illegal but um, mm-hmm. one of the things that I found really interesting about about the book is I come I come to um, things from the pharmacology side, but I also have an interest in harm reduction. And you think of, you know, when you approach things from that perspective, really with, with cot, there's not a lot of harm to reduce. One of the things that really struck me about it was um, how, mm-hmm. how it can be framed as a Schedule One drug or it can be framed yeah. in, a, in a certain way, but uh, especially within the way it's used in traditional societies it's exceptionally safe and, uh, and in, in many ways sort of positive in, in the sense that uh, it's used in a social and, and social mm-hmm. context. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, because I was so interested how you brought out you talked about the yemenI use of it and the, and yeah. the use in Kenya and then and then Madagascar you break it down into the different um, I, that's a lot but yeah maybe you could start.
0: Sure. Let me first say that, okay, so I talked about looking at it from a pharmacological and cultural perspective. There's also a larger perspective of looking at it in terms of a global political economy and the war on drugs. And this does tie in with your question, because I think this is part of the reason why there's such alarm over the drug, is because of these larger political and economic questions that come into play. Uh, COT is associated with uh you know with terrorism and piracy in, in in Somalia and so even a drug that has actually pharmacologically has very mild effects gets a really bad name uh-huh. and i think it's important to look at it from that perspective it's another perspective another reason why people tend to be against cot and why cot gets a bad name is because it's associated with laziness and lack of economic development people there's a sort of a, a causality that people tend to get a little bit mixed up in assuming that people chewing cut is the cause of poverty as opposed to a symptom of it. And in fact, I do have a passage from the book that I can read to you that brings out some of that analysis that I do of cotton and, and laziness. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. It's interesting. First of all, pharmacologically, cotton is a stimulant. It's a mild amphetamine. So to say that it makes people lazy is, is, is a little bit ironic. Yes. Okay. So... On uh, page 54, I'll read you some some excerpts. One social problem that caught is identified with in many cultural contexts globally is so-called laziness or an unwillingness to work productively. Even if they are not generally regarded as a public menace, Young men who tend to be the chewers. Globally, the people who chew a lot of cot tend to be young men. Mm-hmm. They're, they're seen particularly by the middle class and professionals as lazy and as barriers to economic development. They gain this reputation not only because they chew cotton in public while other people are working, in other words, during the day, mm-hmm. but also because they are content to work informally or not to work at all, uh, rather than taking on a steady job. In a survey we did with, with 147 urban respondents, we found that, contrary to common stereotypes, common citizens of the city of Diego Suarez, where the city is located, where the study is located, mm-hmm. do not tend to find that cot makes people lazy. Only seven people, 7% responded that it makes people lazy, 77% that it said that it does not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Despite these accusations of laziness, what seems clear from the outside and what the common people implicitly recognize is that not only are there not enough jobs for the available manual labor market, there are not enough professionals jobs available to make staying in school seem worthwhile. So in other words, people say, oh, these kids, they start doing caught, they drop out of school, without taking into consideration the larger context of a complete lack of jobs.
2: Um, A couple of things, I know you. uh, One thing is when you read that, it just, um, it has echoes of, um, if you substituted cannabis or marijuana and the way that it was used especially you know in the in the early days of in the 30s and 40s but the, the against mexicans and african americans and still to this day i think that's a common perception uh that uh and it's interesting that 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 uh just interesting i don't know what to say uh
0: yeah, I think it really does tie in with, with larger agendas. So in other words, um, drug perceptions of drug legality and illegality are about so much more than health and pharmacological properties. And we do see that in terms of, especially like you're saying, cannabis is probably a big example. Then if you look at drugs like alcohol, which is extremely addicting and very legal, you just realize that looking at drug interdiction and and, and drug management of drugs from a public health level is just saturated with global politics Uh and cultural perceptions of harm rather than any kind of pharmacological absolutes. So,
2: um, One of the things, maybe you could talk about, uh, because Madagascar is exceptionally poor and uh, I don't know Mm -hmm. there was recently like a coup, right? Or a, a overthrow of the government within the last three years or something. Was there some political...
0: In 2002, there or was 2002. a takeover. Okay. Yeah, there was a takeover of the presidency. And so... So, so you were there post that period? Is this research... I started this particular research in 2004, but I've been doing research in Madagascar. Actually, my first visit there was in 1990. Okay. And I did my dissertation research there and wrote an earlier book on, particularly on protected area issues in the north there, and then I developed this research project. So I've been going to Madagascar on and off since the early 90s, Uh. but this particular project started in 2004. Yeah, so that so, so that made that major political issue was, was sort of just behind them. It was, it was definitely in people's memory, but it was just behind when I started to study.
2: Okay. Um, how poor is it? It's one of the poorest countries on earth, like in terms of GDP, mm-hmm. or in terms of per capita yeah. income, right?
0: <laughs> yes, it is, absolutely. It's, it's extremely poor. And that's another one of the arguments I make, that, that the whole story of pot is really interesting for both the medical reasons and the talking about drugs, but it's also really interesting as a case study of how people how the some of the poorest people in the world today adapt to conditions of poverty because the cot economy is really an entirely local economy it's grown locally sold locally Do you think that's important. what saved it.
2: Do you think that's what's prevent? you know, that the fact that freshness and that it's not, uh, so I just wonder that, you know, because
0: mm-hmm.
2: anytime time that, that it's, there's money in it, you would expect that the powers that be or whatever, you know, if you look at opium or you look yeah. at the way that, um, and, yeah. but cat is sort of interesting because it does persist. Um mm-hmm. Is the is the local part of it part yeah, of the reason? Yeah, I really reason? think
0: it is. Also, because yeah, because because cots active properties break down so quickly within 24 to 48 hours, it breaks down into what's considered a Schedule One drug, which is the most serious, right up there with heroin. To a schedule three drug which is actually not even controlled internationally the schedule one drug is but it breaks down and it doesn't synthesize well in a laboratory so there's really not much of a market for it in Western countries There probably never will be and I think that definitely protects it is it's very much and it's it's very much related to certain kinds of uh, social contexts it has very local interests And the logistics of of moving it around are are very difficult, too. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in the United States and Canada and other places, but a lot of time its use is within Somali immigrant communities.
2: Okay. And then also, uh, in my experience, also Ethiopians. um,
0: Yeah.
2: And also, you know, it's... it's different in the united states from in england cuz in england i think it's legal and i know that there's actually they'll fly jets full of it or they'll not jets full yeah. of it but they will fly it so that it can be consumed fresh
0: right that's right that's right yeah they fly it it mostly comes from it's mostly grown in kenya and ethiopia and in fact the development of ethiopian airlines came about in about 19 19- In the 1950s, specifically, one of the impetuses was to to fly caught, actually to Yemen at that point in time. But, Uh but yeah, today there's a lot of air traffic going between the Horn of Africa and um, and England, and it is legal there. They're having some discussions about it. There's a lot of people talking about wanting to make it illegal, but at this point it is still legal. Uh Uh-huh.
2: So that's interesting, you know, that people still have the positive associations with it, because I don't think it would be... It it wouldn't be somebody who's just taking it up de novo, who's going to go to the trouble of getting it in a place like England where you could just either buy something illicitly um, like speed or some, you know, if you're looking for that kind of effect. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Yeah, there's other drugs that do it just as well. Right.
2: Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, do you you know about the um, prevalence of amphetamine and psychostimulants being used as uh, psychiatric medications and um, did you, mm-hmm. do you find that kind of intre- do you, ha, have you thought about that in relation to the way that COT can be used sometimes I'm sure people do use it in addition to the social thing they might use it like you said to work or to study
0: mm-hmm. absolutely you're talking about like in, say, in Ritalin when, where uh, stimulants are used in drugs like Ritalin, yeah
2: yeah or adderall which is a adderall, it's, it's,
0: yeah. which is racemic
2: amphetamine um, and it's given you know for um, it, it's given in low doses for for you know attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, and it's very commonly used for to help people study or to help people focus in school so did yeah. you, know, did you
0: I do think that's really interesting how drugs are play so many different roles. There's religious roles, there's social roles cult- related to cultural identity, but there is this kind of self-medication that goes on. Uh, either medication, not necessarily just self-medication through prescriptive psychiatric drugs, but, yeah, people do use COTS as a way of medicating themselves for certain things, either to work or, like you said, to study, ironically, an amphetamine, uh, produces some concentration as well. In fact, when people chew cot in Madagascar, that's one of the words they use to describe the effect that they get from it and what they like about it is it allows them to concentrate. So even when they're chewing it entirely socially with their friends, they like the feeling of concentration they get even in that social space. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes. that,
2: you know that is partly... A function of the of the plant to have that somewhat, you know, the concentration can be accompanied by euphoria. The mm-hmm. danger with amphetamines is that, you know, one little pill, if somebody develops uh, tolerance to it, then taking two or three little pills is really not that hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Whereas
2: the thing about CUT is that you have a built-in safety mechanism in that it's work, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's like a process it's, it, of ingesting the drug or the, the the pharmacologically active components over time. How long does it take, you know, how long does it take to chew it?
0: Right, right, exactly. It takes a while to chew it, and the pharmacological reviews that I have done have talked about the danger of cot as a, as a chewed plant as being severely reduced by the fact that it is ingested by chewing it, and the effects take, so it takes a while to take place. You can't really overdose on cots, so to speak, and so a lot of the pharmacological reviews, especially the ones that are more sensitive to social contexts in which it's taken, that are paying attention to the route of administration, really recognize that this is the kind of drug that you can overdose on, that there are built-in checks and balances on uh, its uh, effects.
2: Uh, which is remarkable and is often the case yeah. when you, you know, like one of the things since I'm reading on, on drugs and alcohol you, you come up against, it's kind of a recurring theme that uh, um, the if you look at the medicine side of it, for example, there's, uh, there's the belief that a pure Compound that stimulates a single Receptor is Better than a mm-hmm. Plant um, because We're looking for one thing okay. Um But the 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 plant has it, mm-hmm. it It has many things in a long Tradition of use Um in a safe context It's like you said I mean it's just you can't Physically overdose on it um,
0: Right, and, and when it's true in different social contexts, people recognize the progression of the drug effect, and they have different ways of thinking about the different stages of it. So there's the um, there's you know the time when you're sort of waiting for it to take effect, and then there's the time when it's the most strongly affecting you. In Yemen, they they even, they have a word for this the period of time when you're really feeling this the speed effects of the amphetamine. Conversations are going, and everything's very animated, and then they recognize this the same period of, of quietness afterwards, where people are more introspective and more thinking to themselves. So they recognize this as a sort of going from an up to a down as part of the cycle of amphetamine. Is that common for amphetamines across the board? Uh, it, it There's always, yeah,
2: I, I think that... Um It would depend on the dosage, but I think that any time you can't have a perpetual state of um, stimulation without Mm -hmm. eventually there there having to be a return to homeostasis. Mm -hmm. And that depending on how far, you know, the extreme example would be a meth person who uh, would snort or smoke um, or inject like a a, a a large dose of meth that would keep them awake for days they, yeah. they would subsequently be almost comatose uh, yeah. or very tired because the body will eventually catch up but you know again with a plant um, it's harder to get I guess I can't say with a plant because there are plants like scopolamine or, you know, the dissociative uh, belladonna alkaloids and things mm-hmm. like that, that would would be extremely toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's obvious that cot is not that way. And yeah, you know, it seemed like, you know, part of the thing that I found interesting is, I guess partly because it's chewed in places where it's hot, Mm-hmm. you tend to stay up at night because in the daytime I would imagine um, it's hot so is there more time you know so how it's chewed like at night and it's it or the chewing sessions typically I know like in the Ethiopian context the chewing sessions are typically um, social things where um, it'll go into the night and then mm-hmm. and then maybe they'll even though they're tired, they're still stimulated, there's still some stimulation, mm-hmm. so that's where people will either, you know, drink, or mm-hmm. what other ways mm-hmm. do they deal with that, or is that the way it's used there in Madagascar, or is it more of like a
0: daytime in the market, hanging out? Yeah. Well, this is the way, okay, so in just to contrast this a little bit with with, uh, places like Ethiopia and Yemen where Uh it's been chewed literally for centuries Uh and it's oftentimes incorporated into religious ceremonies as well as social very specifically highly choreographed social settings. In a place like Yemen you're not supposed to chew it by yourself. It's considered to be sort of a bad thing. Uh And everybody gets I mean from what I hear from people who visit Yemen everybody who goes you get drawn into especially if you're a man Uh get drawn into caught chewing. In fact even the president does a lot of, oh. at least at one, at some points, does has done business over caught sessions, and it's a it's a deeply ingrained part of Yemeni politics. Well, in Madagascar, it was introduced much more recently. It was introduced in the colonial period around the beginning of the 1900s under the French, uh, and the French hired Yemeni. Dock workers, they were ship workers, and they came over and they were and they stayed in Madagascar. Uh, the, the, the city that this is in is called Diego Suarez, and there's a large natural harbor. So some of these Yemenis just stayed in Madagascar. They they chewed amongst themselves socially and eventually they started growing kitchen gardens, just a few plants for themselves. It kind of started catching on, and gradually over the 20th century, it started, well, it didn't really start catching on amongst the general Malagasy population until probably, oh, in the 80s someplace, or even in the early 90s, when more and more common Malagasy people started chewing it. The reputation was that, its reputation is that the taxi drivers were the first to start chewing it in order to keep themselves awake. Well, a lot of the taxi drivers are young men. And so now I talk about there being several different main categories of chewers. So you still have the people who are Yemeni identified. They still consider themselves, the word they use is Arab. So they, so they chew amongst themselves. They, they generally don't consume alcohol while they do it. The next group of people you have are the people who are well-employed. They may have steady jobs, and they'll chew on weekends or on their days off. Uh, and then you have the young men, the chewers, who are kind of considered like juvenile delinquents, and it's part—it's a big part of youth culture. interesting thing with cot is that in many places where you find it, especially as a newer custom where it's been taken up more recently, it is a way of being hip or cool in the young male generation. And it's the same thing in Madagascar. So what they do is they, generally they like to chew it right after lunch. So it is during the day. Um, Because of this whole need for speed and the the, the time factor, you got to get it from the field to the chewer as fast as possible. People will tend to pick the cod in the morning and get it to the city by by around noon or 1 o'clock. So around noon or 1 o'clock, The cot trucks start coming in and people, there's a big hullaboo in the streets and people gather around and everybody buys their cot for the afternoon. Sometimes people chew it by themselves, it's not stigmatized to do so. Oftentimes people chew it with groups of friends. And generally by evening, by by about by by say dinner time, late afternoon, people are are spitting out their, their wads of cots and some people some people drink alcohol. Uh, a lot of people drink alcohol, but not everybody in order to kind of come down from that experience. So yeah, it is a daytime experience okay. for them and very social. Okay. For many people anyway.
2: So um, what what about the the land part, which is what you originally went there for, right? Yeah. So
0: yeah.
2: how did how did it um, – because, again, you know, I'll give you parallels. I'm reading about uh, opium and how mm-hmm. – um, became completely industrialized by the British and uh, I think it was the 1700s or, you know, how it became just commercial monoculture uh, mm-hmm. dedicated o- over large swaths mm-hmm. of land. And um, cot is so different. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, cot is primarily farmed by smallholders and, Everywhere it's farmed, interestingly enough, in Ethiopia and Yemen as well, you don't tend to find large, huge plantations of cotton. I mean, you find some people planting a lot more than others and becoming a lot more wealthy than others than some. So there's some stratification, but really there's a large place for small-scale farmers in all of this. And what I found in my original questions about the deforestation is to what extent is cot responsible for deforestation. Uh, As it turned out, it didn't seem like cot was as responsible as some people were afraid of. And some people, even people working in the local conservation office, were recognized that cot was useful in some areas for stabilizing the soil. In any case, what you realize is with land use change issues, there's there, there's a lot more going on than just cotton. One of the biggest questions with cotton, and this question arose as I interviewed people, I had no idea I was going to be asking about this going into it, where people were worried that cotton planting was going to be taking over traditional food production. So in other words, people were going to be planting cotton instead of rice and instead of vegetables. Um, so... What I found is that a lot of farmers, particularly in one area, there's two main growing areas, particularly in one area, people were converting their irrigated rice fields into cot, plant, into cot plantations, small cot fields, but irrigated cot fields. And the benefit for them was that cots would cost a lot more during the dry season. So anybody who was planting cotton in an irrigated field could earn a lot of money from it in the dry season. Most people who were farming cotton did not have an irrigated field, and they could only get money from it in the wet season. So, of course, the price was much lower. But there was also a high. People had a high value on growing food crops. Nobody, the, the farmers didn't really want to give up their food crops. So the ideal was to farm to have cots and rice, and vegetables, and to not have to give to give up anything. But of course, there are market constraints and market issues, and. Farm. As you know, the price of cotton up, if you could sell cotton, then, then that's what you would do. And you find the same question about cotton versus food, the drugs versus food issue. You find that with other drugs and also with cotton other places. There's a whole book published, uh, edited by Ezekiel Gavisa, about cotton versus food in. Uh, in Ethiopia, and there's been discussions about that in Yemen, and pretty much the, the, the people who've been investigating that find that it's a lot more complex than just saying is taking over. A lot, a lot of times there's a lot of other market things going on that are discouraging the growing of food crops or dramatically encouraging the growth of, of drug crops by, by, by them being so lucrative. What I found in Madagascar was that you know, people in the cities, the policymakers, and the people who are just had common opinions about cot farmers are like, oh, those farmers, you know, they always want the easy way out, they cot is easier to grow, and they get so much money from it, so of course they're going to switch to that. But when I talked to farmers themselves, the farmers felt like, well, actually, there is a fair amount of weeding that you have to do with successful cot, it is, it's a lot more time consuming than you think, and... Especially for the people who are farming vegetables, they said, you know, Luke, there's a lot of problems with farming vegetables, and that the uh, the road system is bad. A lot of times, their crops would get destroyed just trying to get them to markets. The market had shifted, so there wasn't such a demand for vegetables anymore. So the whole question of food versus cotton much more complicated than just saying, oh, cod is so easy to grow and worth so much money. The the farmers ultimately wanted to have a diverse portfolio. They wanted to grow vegetables. They wanted to grow rice as well as cod.
2: Is that a function of um, wanting to grow for their own use? And then just have a little bit to sell, or are they, you know, are they used to being self-sustaining? I guess is
0: part mm-hmm. of the question. That's a really good question, particularly with rice. You find that they have there's a high value on being self-sustaining on rice. You know, the farmers hate the idea of ever having to buy rice, oh. and they will try to avoid that. Um, the other thing is. Talking to especially wealthier farmers who have a little bit more capital at their disposition, they've got some more irrigated lands. So the wealthy farmers are like, you know, it makes sense to grow some vegetables because of, because of the market. Uh-huh. And that in the dry, in the wet season, when the price of cod is low, you know, you want to have some other crops to have out there. So a lot of farmers saw that they wanted to balance it in terms of seasonality. And that there was actually good market. There were good market reasons for growing vegetables as well as rice, as as well as cotton.
2: Ah, uh-huh. okay.
0: So when you when you're looking at this stuff and
2: you run up against a lot of ignorance, like you know when you read the descriptions that doctors give for. Um, like you know saying that it makes you slow or whatever not even recognizing that as an amphetamine it's going to have amphetamine like effects and misinterpreting things um, does that I, I don't know it's interesting because they it's so much you're so much more perceptive than society yeah. at large i guess part of the thing is when you when you the ignorance that you see in terms of yeah. drugs is to an intelligent person who can look at things from a lot of different perspectives, it's pretty obvious. And um,
0: yeah, well, one of the things that always that always gets me. My favorite is when cod is described as a narcotic. Uh, you know, yeah. just the whole word "narcotic" has become so
2: charged in, yeah. our, in our language. Yeah, and actually, it's meaningless uh, chemically. It's that's a, a legal definition. You know, I think from uh, oh. I, I, I watched a lot of uh, Dragnet as a little kid, oh, wow. and I think that's how Joe Friday used to refer <laughs> to them things as narcotics. And um, I'm confident that he would paint. Caught to be a very very dangerous substance. So um,
0: what is a narcotic technically then? You said it's not a med. It's well, not a I, I guess medication. it would be a. It,
2: it's from narcosis, you know, which is like to sleep. But so, huh. but it, it's an old term, like mm-hmm. uh, um, because now you would you would say oh it's you would break things down by uh, the class. Of an opiate or a benzodiazepine or, uh, or or an analgesic or. I guess I always thought that the um, narcotics were the uh, opiates. That's
0: what I always thought they were. Uh huh. Yeah, that's, that's
2: yeah that that would be more that would be more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like a weird, like World Health mm-hmm. Organization type term. Um, right. So when when so when you see things like uh, people wanting to make cot illegal or put money into interdiction against it, like do you see that as um, I, I always break things down into ignorance, greed, mm-hmm. or aversion, and you know what what is motivating people when they right,
0: um, right. I think a lot of what motivates people is fear of the social consequences. I think a lot of people are afraid that when people chew cot, they do become lazy, uh-huh. they become a drag on society, and they're an impediment to development. I really think that is a large extent. There's another issue that you can't really deny about it, and this is one of the negative things with cot, is it the people who chew cot a lot, uh, sometimes it becomes a drain on household budgets. Uh-huh. And so sometimes it How expensive is it? Drain.
2: Yeah, how expensive is it? Uh-huh.
0: Well, it depends, of course, on between the the dry season and the wet season. I would have a hard time that. So, compared that,
2: to the price of a meal or something like that, like for for one person's chewing session, could you compare?
0: Yeah, it, it would it was it probably one chewing session would cost. It would cost more than it would. Probably.
2: How about a you, pack of cigarettes?
0: You, you, can, you, you, can, you can feed a family for a day for what it costs
2: well, to, sh- okay. to a pack of Cot. What about in cigarettes? <laughs> so oh, to no, use, that's like, a good question. Different exchange, like that's prison yeah. exchange.
0: <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I know that it can, that a lot of people, okay, so this is another one of the bad reputation that Cot has is, really straining households. And so the reputation, especially, that is that women don't like cot, especially because their male partners and sons chew cot and, and drag money away from the family. Uh-huh. And you find that opinion, you find that opinion widespread, even amongst Malagasy people, but what I have found is when I went in and did my in-depth interviews, and I had a team of people from the university helping me with this, when we did in-depth interviews, semi, semi-structured surveys, we found that a lot of, there wasn't as much agreement on this in the poor areas of town where most of the cot che- chewers live. There wasn't as much agreement on this. In fact, a lot of women were like, well, I'd prefer that he chew cot than that he drink alcohol. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they're like, there's a lot of worse things he can do." Uh-huh. And if he chews cots and hence he actually is productive and he does things around the house. So I found that that there's a there's a wide variety of reactions to cot and it can be they can be negative. Uh, a, a linguist friend of mine over there studies you male youth culture and their kind of slang and they're they're all cot chewers. And so he talks to me about noticing that sometimes the men and their and their friends will sit around dark living rooms all day chewing cots, uh, and that the children of the family feel like they don't have anywhere to go, uh, and that this really is a genuine concern. Uh, and so I think sometimes people who are against cot are looking at some of these
2: behaviors.
0: Yeah, are looking at some of these behaviors. Now uh, it's really interesting studying legalization, illegalization movements. I read about ones going on in, in um, East Africa. And one point that was made is that sometimes just talking about the social consequences of the drug weren't really enough to raise public uh, concern about the drug so much. It wasn't until they started bringing up the health issues that people started paying attention. So sometimes I think people leverage health arguments essentially in order to make social arguments. Uh-huh. And one of the problems with that is, again, it gets the cart before the course. It's like, is caught the problem or is caught a symptom? And it's probably more complex than that. But I think to just blame caught alone is, is, is pretty short-sighted and not really taking a look at serious how serious so social issues of poverty, of lack of employment, uh, and, and other kinds of issues that are probably more real and far more pressing than caught showing itself.
2: Um it's a convenient um, mm-hmm. something to attack, I guess, yeah. or I don't know what the, there's an expression. Scapegoat. I mean. there's a it's a scapegoat. A scapegoat, uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, always, uh, I, you can think of all mind-altering substances can act as fuels or as things to decrease inhibitions or to increase energy levels. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a, um, if the if the culture is directed in a certain way mm-hmm. uh, especially if there's not like a long tradition of them being yeah. used it's That's not surprising that um so you know like you talk about the young guys uh, mm-hmm. uh what was there's like a uh, could you talk a little bit about them because i thought that was interesting they're like hip-hop yeah. kind of like yeah. um just urban urban youth yeah. basically right
0: They really are and you know, it's it's associated with a kind of a hip culture like you're saying they've got their own their own slang and You know chewing cod is really cool And one of the interesting things this is a fascinating point that several people have made and I found it to be true in Madagascar as well It's a way that young men are forging connections with each other and associations with each other in an urban environment that is multi-ethnic. So you find people cutting across ethnicities in order to establish bonds with each other based on new forms of identity that that have a place in youth culture and where caught is also symbolically very important. And so I would point out as a cultural phenomenon, that's actually kind of a neat thing to see that people are making positive associations and connections with each other. They're coming together across ethnic lines and in a very urban and a very modern a form of, a form of identification. You know, if you look at, do they listen to
2: hip hop? Do they listen to What kind of music do they listen to? I, Cause I, I love music. I listen to a lot of Malagasy guitar music, but that's a, uh, that that's, not an urban-feeling music that feels like...
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it doesn't at all. No, no. What they listen to more is... That, and I know the kind of music you're talking about, that's more from the high plateau. The, the Malagasy music coming from the coastal areas sounds more like kind of world music. It sounds, Indonesian or something like that? Or no, it, it actually sounds a little bit more like like African, oh, okay. Latin American even. Okay. Um.
2: Do you have Do you have the names of artists Do you know any artists like that you remember Oh I I my mind
0: is escaping okay. me right now okay. um, I is come
2: music up, like, like a big part of the milieu Like when you're there Is it like Because I mean part of what I I mm-hmm. It seems is like cot is It's like a drug where you said it's an urban drug or an yeah. urban um, Whatever it is, it really it's an is. urban it really stimulant. Is. or And, um, like, are there people who are so poor that they don't even, you know, they, they don't have enough money for, like, to buy a beer? So is there, like, are you still talking about, like, relative to the society, a pretty – they're, like – if they have enough money to buy cot, then they're hustling in there. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, there's an interesting thing there. But g- Going back to what we were talking about earlier, you asked if they listen to hip-hop. They do tend to idolize American hip-hop culture, even if they don't always listen to hip-hop music uh, per se. Okay. But um, they, 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 they tend to wear the baggy clothes, and the, they kind of identify to some extent with hip-hop culture. I can read you another little part. Yeah. This is from an interview that this linguist did, where he was asking um, about the relationship between this is this is at the bigger questions of laziness and cultural perceptions of work. Uh, and so uh, the uh, the linguist, his name is Pierre Mbima. So Mbima asked if these a group of of these young men, if life in the city is difficult, and this respondent who works seasonally at a port and does odd jobs the rest of the year, he replied in the slang that of the youth slang, and this is, this is a quote from this young man he says difficult yes you need money there's no work there are many um, there are many unemployed people that's what it is many young people are without work even though you need money to buy clothes it is difficult that means that the young men in this particular group called koroko must Work the, at night. They must do operations, meaning stealing. There are those who sell cots. Some work at the port as dock workers. Some live off the earnings of women. There are still others whose specialty is stealing at the outdoor market, because it is necessary to find attractive clothing, whatever it costs. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was te- I was hesitant about whether I should read that uh, quote because it kind of puts them in a negative light. But what I because what I found in my in my actual interviews with people is that there is not actually a lot of stealing associated with, you know, sort of admits to stealing. It becomes I don't know, like, culturally valued. But in reality, like, I don't think the stealing, I don't think that's a huge, a real social problem.
2: In my experience, at, uh, and I, I, it's a limited experience, but my experience at African markets where uh, law enforcement is done by the people, you don't really, you know, there's no 911 exactly. to call. Um, that exactly. If you steal and you get caught, the consequences can be very severe. Like, you know, exactly. they might beat you to death or something like that. So, I, so it is, you know, I, I don't know if it's that poor there in Madagascar also.
0: Yeah, I, I think in some ways it's interesting that he talks so much about stealing, because even though it may happen occasionally, it's not a dominant concern. And, uh, you know, Of all those people I interviewed, 147 people, well, with the help of my research assistants, wow. formally and a bunch of people informally. Nobody is saying oh they steal all the time they steal and it is not a real ongoing concern but it's interesting to just show their attitude towards towards money they and they're just it gives a little flavor of them culturally clothes are important they like to wear new clothes and yeah there are a lot of people who can't who can't afford even that yes there are a lot of people who can't afford beer there are a lot of people who who uh, they can probably afford cigarettes because you can buy cigarettes one by one but there are people who are um, definitely a lot poorer. So these people who are chewing cod at all do have some money at their disposition and are probably not the very poorest of the poor. That is a good point. Um, but a lot of them, what they do is they'll work, they'll work odd jobs. Well, some of them live at home still. If they're young enough, they still live at home, they eat at home, and they'll do an odd job during the day, you know, just to get enough money to, to chew their cot. Some of them, if they live on their own, they just live very bare bones. They're not necessarily married. You know, they might work washing cars or something in the afternoon just for enough money to chew cot in their bare existence.
2: You were on what part of the island were you? Were you caught? Diego Suarez is uh, very far north. The far north, okay. And is there? You said that there, you know, with it, that especially with the youth that caught use um, transcends ethnicity, or it it's a bridge between ethnic mm-hmm. groups yeah. um, on other parts of the island. Is there a demand for COT, or is it is it the kind of thing that's growing?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's a good question. Yeah, let me just say that, it, that this, it bridges not only ethnic groups, but it bridges even class distinctions and neighborhood distinctions. So it's really a unique and very interesting phenomenon for all of that. So about the larger demands... Yeah, there are more and more sh- shipments being sent to other parts of the island. So there at the airport, it's a major commerce at the airport of sending cots to the capital city, to the other regional capitals. Anywhere there's an airport, people develop connections. They develop ties. And so cot traders will take their wares to the airport. They used to just sort of send them kind of, illicitly underneath the airplane they used to kind of sneak it on but now it's very well established it's very well structured, they pay it gets sent over as unaccompanied baggage and then they somebody at the other end will get it They'll, they find ways of sending money back and forth and so they sell it yeah, so but it's um, like you find with cots in, in say the United States and Europe where it's a lot of it's chewed by Somali populations, a lot of times caught in those places is chewed by the populations of the people from the north who are really used to it. So in the capital city, the biggest market for pot will be people who are originally from the Degosaurus area. Uh-huh. But they can't, and they don't uh, ship it outside of the country for two reasons. Partly you get the need for speed thing, but on the other hand, that's not a sufficient explanation because we know that it's sent from East Africa to all over the world. Uh, it's mostly because they don't, it, it is illegal in almost any place where they would want to send it to, that's, that, that the market hasn't been saturated by the East African cut. So in the Reunion Island, as French owned. there's a lot of going back and forth between Madagascar and Reunion Islands. It's actually, reading as part of France, it's an overseas department, mm-hmm. and it's illegal there. So uh-huh. from what I've understood, it's, people don't send it over in, in any kind of commercial quantities. And partly as the market is really saturated by all this East African stuff, where there's a, a full infrastructure in place, both in terms of air and land, to move the stuff
2: out. So it's much more like towards this the end of being more not industrial, but more agribusiness-oriented mm-hmm. um, than the small-hold small farmers it Like that, is that right? Like, so if you look at a place like Kenya or if you look at uh, Ethiopia, then they're growing it on a much larger scale in some places, at
0: least. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think still a lot of the farms are owned. I don't know how big any individual Uh, farms are. I still think they're not huge. That's interesting. There's maybe a lot more concentration Uh, of people selling.
2: That's
0: my understanding.
1: Uh huh. So. Uh,
2: When you saw, when you were looking at land use, what did you identify as like? Because I get, I gather that, um, like all, uns, I don't want to say unspoiled, but all places where the forests mm-hmm. are still intact, the pressure is unceasing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and uh, so, what are the what are the big threats to, um, you know? Because I. Course. There's still a lot. I mean, my vision of of the island is that um, there's still some jungle left and some mm-hmm. uns, unspoiled, unlogged, yeah. unmined. Uh,
0: uh. Yeah, those areas are getting fewer and fewer. And this area where cotton is grown is around the borders of a, of the Amber Mountain National Park, where it's been actively protected. Since the late 80s, it was originally set up as a protected area in the 1950s in the colonial era. And then after the colonial era, it wasn't really the boundaries were enforced so much. In the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of international money came in to help support conservation. And so the boundaries have been pretty well uh, uh, enforced since then. And so that has managed to keep up at the Amber Mountain forests relatively protected. Not that there's not illegal cutting. One of the issues that we've, that I've discovered is that on the West side of the Amber Mountain, there's still a lot of, lo- there's still a lot of logging. So there, so logging is always a threat. That's another thing that is a little bit frustrating to read about. People tend to like to blame local people for, Cutting down the forests anywhere in the world, whereas in a lot of instances there's a lot of logging going on that's much much bigger in scale. Uh, you know, people coming in from the outside and logging. So in, in other places in Madagascar right now, like the Masoala Peninsula, there's a big problem with uh, with illegal logging going on that doesn't come down to the local people. It comes down to international logging uh-huh. kinds of issues. Right. Yeah, so so cot actually one of the things going back to talking about cot as sort of a, a, a incredible boon to the local economy. So you have this place, Madagascar, which is one of the poorest places on earth. And so people have got this kind of homegrown economy, of growing cot, selling cot, the market's go, the market is going crazy for it, farmers make a lot of money, traders make a lot of money. It's really the the fuel of the local economy. It's the it's sort of the it's been referred to as the North's green gold. And kind of, it's sort of economic development on their own terms, which is again one of the reasons I was fascinated with it, is because really it is aside from any kind of international aid, aside from the outside of the um, the global capitalist economy, you have this little homegrown economy that functions very much on capitalist principles, uh-huh. and it's going it's going really well and keeping a lot of people with, with food and clothes and, and that sort of thing. One of the arguments that I that I make in the book is, or at least I start to explore this issue of when you're looking at drugs and health, is one of the reasons it's important to look at it, a drug like cot in a holistic perspective is because the questions of health are so much broader than just what happens to consumers. That if you take this kind of a critical medical anthropology or sort of a broader uh, ec- political economic perspective, you realize that health is also connected to standard of living. And if you if you're too poor to afford health care, that's going to affect your health as well. And that these farmers, the cot farmers, are really are, are earning a lot of money. The traders are earning a lot of money that is in effect indirectly affecting their health by giving them the money to go to to doctors and to take care of their health and to buy healthy food. Uh-huh. So these are some of the factors that I think are also important when considering caught as a drug, is looking at what is its overall effect in the community where it's found. And that's where not only consumption is important, but production and distribution. So I try to look at the drug from a real multifaceted perspective for that reason. And looking at health, broadly speaking, health and drugs is a is a broad issue as well. Yeah, um, it, it
2: it's so nice to read a book that does that. Um, I think you know, as a society, we're kind of with. Um, with drugs we're kind of where we were with things like sex education a hundred years ago
0: Yeah. Uh, so
2: far as there's the belief that um, oh this is something we shouldn't do and this is something we shouldn't talk about
0: mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. so we're not going to talk about um, safe sex or you know things that will reduce teenage pregnancy or pregnancy in general um because it's just not, you know, either it's bad or it's not something that people do or there's either, you know, there's value judgments or whatever. And to me, the use of substances, whether it's, uh, you know, coffee or cigarettes or cotton mm-hmm. or marijuana or alcohol or uh, I think, you know, if, as far as you go back in time, you're going to find that that's, those are things that people did. Um, and there are ways that people did them and lived good lives and it was part of part of uh, the quality of their life and there are ways that people did them that were uh, that were maladaptive and uh,
0: Yeah, I think the dangers of looking at any drug in and of itself as either good or bad and looking at it in that kind of a black and white way, that any drug can be used or misused. And I think we do a real disservice to our kids and the traditional training that that my kids are getting in the schools, which is like all drugs are bad all the time. Yeah, so I mean, to me
2: that would be like the equivalent of abstinence-only education, which is... First of all, it doesn't work because that's that's why we succeeded as a species is because those drives are very strong.
0: Exactly. Um, and
2: kids, being kids, they're going to do you know, that's part of life. You know, as as a as a teenager, just like they're going to experiment with alcohol, and you you know, it's I find it interesting that you know we can say on the one hand, oh, you know, you can you, you know. You can practice contraception or you can make sure that you, you know, protect yourself. But we can't say um, there's a safe way to drink. Exactly. And there's a way other than abstinence yeah. um,
0: or overindulgence. such, such mis- mixed messages as well because then they go home and they, and they get their parents in trouble. It's like 1984 for drinking a beer. Right. You know, they're like, they don't understand. It, it just makes no sense to them. And, and at school, they, they're given no cognitive map for figuring out how it can be that their parents can drink a beer after work and have that be okay.
2: Right.
0: And so it kind of paves the way, actually, for, for, for drug abuse, I think, right. by not giving them that kind of a sense that drugs can be used or misused. And you got to be paying attention to more subtle things, like, does it get in the way of the, of the, your ability to function? And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, kids at age shouldn't be doing drugs, but I think there's a more effective way of teaching them that, actually.
2: Right. Right. Um, that, that is unfortunately not, not the case right now. Um, I think DARE and that, that kind of model is still... Um, uh, and part of the problem to me is, you know, when you, when you say something like that, then it's like you said it's confusing because children will see you know media figures what have you Michael Phelps with a bong um oh. and they they can say they there's some cognitive dissonance there they've been told that this is bad bad and it, and then you know they see people who are successful and then there's like oh maybe everything i've been told is a lie or they you really don't know what yeah. to believe Um, so, uh, this book is so good because it provides information that is very objective and that's obviously grounded in, um, a lot of research and experience. So I, I really, uh, I found that very refreshing. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to read from the book? And then I'd like to ask you a question. There's when I was reading your book, I kept coming across this person, Singer.
0: Oh yeah, Merrill Singer is actually he's one of the editors of this book series, and he's one of the leading figures in medical anthropology, uh-huh. and particularly in uh, critical medical anthropology and uh, he makes a lot of really important points. He's actually been quite an inspiration to me because he has encouraged a perspective that says you can't just look in an isolated context at the relationship between drug user and, and drug you know and, and other anthropologists will agree to the extent you have to open it up to a larger cultural context, so including context is important, but what he and other people like him, he's not the only one add to the mix is that what we also have to look at is some of the broader political and economic questions that come into view, like looking at the war on drugs. And let's try to be really honest about what that has to do with our perceptions of drugs, with our treatment of people who use drugs and with what's going on in the world at the time so uh, so, he's actually so he does take. A, he's a very holistic person. He takes absolutely. Oh, interesting. The only other part that I picked out to read was something from the conclusion. Uh huh. And uh, I'll start here with, um, yeah, I'll just start reading part of the conclusion. And uh, asking the question, why would anyone outside of Madagascar care about cots? And this comes back to a question that my son asked me when he was 10 years old. And he knew I was spending all my time studying cot and writing about cot. And he said, Mom, I don't mean to be disrespectful or anything, but who really cares about cot? (laughs) So, you know, I I sort of took it as a challenge, like, okay, why does this matter, right? So, first, what I say is, first, COP provides a significant scholarly case study of cultural and economic survival in the global margins. That's the story of them surviving even amongst the poorest of the poor, and it just speaks to the ability of people to really survive. Second, in a more applied sense, it has relevance for analyzing the effects of drugs in general, and for conceptualizing interventions that can account for the complexities of their effects. Taking a stand on Cot or on any drug requires complex evaluation of their multiple effects, which may include both negative and positive aspects. It can be beneficial to some and harmful to others, for example. Understanding these complex dynamics requires holistic understanding grounded not only in individualistic mental and physical health perspectives, but also in political, economic, social, and cultural contexts. As stated previously, the danger in analyzing any drug lies in black and white, often moralistic thinking that fails to see the complexity of the issues at stake. In disciplinary education for healthcare workers, with a strong grounding in social as well as natural sciences, is an important step toward effective interventions. And what I would just add there is that, yeah, when you take a look at COT, when you did what I did in a holistic sense, you're not going to come out with COT is good period, caught is bad, period, but even as has come out so far in our discussion, there are some negative aspects and there are some positive aspects, and, the, and if you want to do something about COT, say, you know, a healthcare worker, a public health perspective, you have to be able to balance those kinds of things and look at them, put them all together into the mix and realize there's no simple, straightforward answer sometimes. It requires you to think more holistically and more complexly about solutions.
2: That's great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, I really thank you again I really enjoyed it so yeah the part, you talked about people who are poor he talked about people he said people who are poor and who have a sense of hopelessness are more likely to use psychotropic substances and in turn to suffer from drug use related diseases in addition to experiencing lower general health status Um Mm-hmm. and I don't know, I, I mean, my experience as a physician is that drug use, psychotropic drug use is ubiquitous throughout society
0: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, there it might be that people uh, it might be alcohol or some drug that's more socially accepted um, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, you know, and in fact I see Really, the dis- the diseases. A lot of the diseases I see are diseases of affluence, oh. that are from uh, an excess of either you know being able to buy b- beer for really cheap or being able to buy uh, you know a gigantic thirty two ounce Coke and fried chicken for a dollar forty nine because yeah. it's subsidized and um, and uh, mm-hmm. th- those are the that's. Kind of the the sequelae of that which are diabetes and obesity and and uh, um, and pathology so I don't know I kind of think uh-huh. that you know the poor are more vulnerable to all sorts of things like you know they're vulnerable just by virtue of the fact that they're poor, but I don't know that um, they use drugs anymore or any mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: yeah, I just yeah I, the same.
0: yeah, I think I think those the statements are, are an attempt to look at to what extent are different segments of society disproportionately perhaps or not disproportionately, yeah. but to ask, are any segments of society disproportionately negatively affected by things? And I think right. he's he's trying to look at the extent to which yeah. the poor might, might 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 suffer maybe in different ways than the wealthy. But it's interesting if you look at those things like the like the diabetes and all of that, there's huge Socioeconomic correlations between, relatively in the United States, uh, a lot of the isn't diabetes more concentrated amongst lower income people yeah. for whom those those um, you know, those those foods are yeah because they're eating the, yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah. So you were contrasting that with the drugs. You were saying that so yeah, I think that yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, the
2: uh, the
0: I hear Suzanne and.
2: and in fact, you know, maybe the excesses of somebody who's uh, high functioning might be tolerated as uh, long mm. because they're not spending time in the public space or they're not under the same amount of scrutiny that yeah. uh, poor yeah, people yeah. are. Yeah, I
0: hear you. I hear you. That's um, really
2: great. Uh, let me see. Is there is there anything else you want to say? Let me see if there's anything parts that are, like I really highlighted. Okay. That. that uh, Yeah, take your time. Yeah, I really, the whole cultural, I'm not, I don't have an anthropology background, so just reading about cultural medical anthropology was, for me, very... um I learned a lot, and I really appreciated that you talk about it. But you don't uh, – some of the texts I've read um, can get very deep into the theory, and you don't do that, which I really appreciated. Um,
0: Thank, you. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's my goal. That's one of my goals with this is to have something that is accessible, and, and it really makes me very happy to hear that you found it useful from your perspective as, a, as an MD. That means very much to me, and I hope other people can find it useful from – their own, their own multiple perspectives. How did you get interested? I'm just curious, just on my end, how, here's how you got interested in the study of, of drugs, and how you got into... Uh, well, because that,
2: that's yeah. partly, uh, it's always been an interest of mine from, uh, when I was an undergraduate, just uh, pharmacology, and uh, that was... That was the class that kind of made or break, huh. made, was make or break for uh, getting into medical school. And I had, uh, I had it was chemistry. And uh, really? I had, uh, um, yeah, this is interesting, actually. So I had, <laughs> I, I had failed chemistry, organic chemistry, twice. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, yeah I, I was smart, but I just didn't like to study. Right.
0: So, I've got a lot of those kind of students. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh,
2: so I had an experience with uh, MDMA when uh-huh. it was still legal. And right. yeah, uh, right. so it was like, yeah, somebody said, oh, yeah, there's this uh, really, this drug that's really great. And, uh, <laughs> of course, you know, now – now I would say, oh, my God, who made the drug? Where did it come from? You know, China. Oh, it came from China. Isn't that that place where they put poison in the baby formula? Right. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm interested in that, but those were different days. And, again, it was like it was legal. And because it was legal, there were. Part of criminalizing something is when you create a black market, there's incentive oh, yeah. to manufacture it in a clandestine fashion, mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you'll get arrested if, if not. And so the, the manufacture of it is not of the same purity that if I'm just buying vitamin E or something, that's just a chemical, um, which this was at the time. So, uh-huh. uh, I had a very positive experience with that. And, uh, I thought, Oh, maybe I want to learn to make this, you know, how right. do I make it? And so, <laughs> Oh, well, you have to know organic chemistry. <laughs> so I, uh, so that was what got me to apply myself in organic chemistry. And <laughs> since I failed it twice, I had to take the upper, Division organic chemistry to show that And I really uh, I did very well And just by virtue of my interest And I realized halfway through that there's You know, there's no way that I'm Interested in in uh, Cooking something like this up Right And okay. uh, for that matter they act Yeah, so But whatever, it spurred my interest In um, In uh, Pharmacology And then the whole uh, debate around why was it being made illegal, in spite of the fact that I saw that, oh, it could be, uh, it could be used in a very positive way. Um, and yeah. that the people who were, uh, who were putting those arguments forward were not um, Timothy Leary types. You know, they weren't like, oh, let's just throw everything to the wind and, and drop out. And um, not that I'm opposed to that to the the idea of objecting to uh, the status quo, but they were reasonable people, and then you sort of, you could see the the hypocrisy or the ignorance in people's arguments. And uh, then, uh, you know, so then... I had to decide, oh, well, you know, do I pursue that or do I pursue something that's very separate from that? Because really in medicine, the the realm of substances is kind of seeded to the psychiatrist. And uh-huh. um, I, I'm an anesthesiologist, so that's really what I do. Uh-huh. But I've also done training in pain management. And so uh-huh. that's a whole – so anesthesiology is yeah. extremely pharmacological and yeah. uh, it's – it's it's like a person or a dog would behave the same way because you're just dealing with physiology. So it's much it's much less uh, hmm. multidisciplinary in its practice. Yeah. Um, but then uh, I've also had experience doing pain management, which is very different because then you're dealing with people who are awake, and yeah. it then the whole. It's much more complicated, um, and uh, and you see, you know, the the results of uh, people's lack of understanding about the difference between a medicine and a poison, and that um, just be, you know, f- for for example, um, physician prescribed opiates kill. Over as many people as die in car crashes every year, really? so that's fifteen to seventeen thousand people a year die this- from overdoses of of oh. physician prescribed opiates. Oh. And oh. really, what that is is it's because people um, there's a small subset of people who are abusers, and they are you know they're but then I think there's a lot of people who are just naive. And have never been told, oh, if you take three of these Oxycontins, it's not like taking three Vicodin, and it can kill you. And so, especially in in conjunction with alcohol. So, you know, like Whitney Houston is is somebody you know about because she's Mm -hmm. famous, Mm -hmm. but she died really from alcohol and benzodiazepine overdose, um, which is... Like Valium and alcohol, and uh so the most dangerous drugs are ironically are the ones that are available with a doctor's mm-hmm. prescription and and doctors bear some responsibility because they give them to the patient, and they don't tell them, "Don't take this with alcohol um, yeah, don't drink or uh. And, for example, with benzodiazepines, like Valium-type drugs, um, they cause amnesia, Mm -hmm. especially if you drink. And so some people will take it and then forget that they took it, and then take it again and forget that they took it. And um, so in terms of mortality, recently a study came out where they showed that uh, taking benzodiazepines is as dangerous as smoking cigarettes. Wow. So, yeah, so hmm. um, it, all, all of that is interesting to me. So it's really refreshing to see. But the thing is, when you look at the dialogue of drug education or drug interdiction, it's, uh, you know, this is, you know, why should cut be illegal? Or hmm. Hmm. I, th- I think if we just stuck to the drugs that have a long history of relatively safe use, um, yeah. And let people use them, which yeah. they're going to do anyway.
0: Which they're going to do anyway. Yeah, and yeah. your examples just really point out the idea that a substance isn't good and bad in and of itself; it's all how it's used. Yeah, yeah. Like,
2: amphetamines. I mean, the in the sixties, they used to say speed kills, and amongst people, even of my generation, I'm on the west coast, and there was always that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that. Uh, Knowledge that you know—that's really what they say killed the hippie movement was the injection of amphetamines, um, and that it was—it was very destructive because, for yeah, for obvious reasons. But now that they that those drugs are in vogue and are being written, you know, that's very common for psychiatrists to uh, write for those drugs, and they're able to do so safely because the the route of administration is, is oral rather than intravenous or yeah. insufflated, and the dosages are controlled right. Um, right. And, and monitored. So uh, it's interesting when you get a substance like Cot that, because on the flip side of that, people are stupid, and if you give them free beer, mm-hmm. a large percent of them will get drunk and get into fights, Um, Because because whatever uh, alcohol is disinhibiting and, and, uh, but so when you have a a substance like cot that is, uh, it just, it seems extraordinarily benign uh, as far as drugs go.
0: It really is. Yes, yes. It's absolutely... I would totally agree with you on that. It's like a strong cup of coffee. And one of the things that's very fascinating is the role of culture in affecting the um, the the effects people will feel from a drug. Uh-huh. You know, some... You people learn to experience certain drugs. You know, you you people interpret their experiences depending on the cultural context they're in, and people say like sometimes you hear with marijuana, people who smoke it the first time they're like, you know, they, they they don't feel anything, and part of the reason I think might be maybe there's a physiological reason for this, but part of it is because they haven't completely learned how to feel it. Oh. Because uh, it is very culturally bound, and so you look at affection something like cot. If if you're just going to chew cot outside of any cultural context whatsoever, you might feel a little buzzy, you know, a little bit like you feel on, uh, you know, you drink a lot of coffee. Yeah. But really, the, the real joy in chewing Chinwinkok comes from these cultural contexts that elevate it to an art and a social, and a really, really beautiful social experience. Uh-huh. So yeah, so the drug effects are, are cultural, and the, and the culture inter, inter, interacts with the pharmacology in really fascinating ways, ways that are really fascinating to me as an anthropologist. Other studies of drugs point this out, say with alcohol, that people's... People's response
2: to alcohol is very heavily conditioned by the cultural context in which they drink it. Uh, yeah, I always was uh, when I first read. I think is it in Colombia or somewhere where um, people will drink it and be very serious and sit around and talk about their problems and cry. But it's not uh, it's not what I you know the Oktoberfest experience that you see. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's very cultural. The Oktoberfest, the Bacchanalia experience is, is very, very, very culturally prescribed. And so when you see really radically different experiences of it, say Native American communities or amongst the Irish or amongst, you know, different ethnic Different ethnic groups respond to it differently, and a lot of that is cultural. Uh, right, which is, which is really fascinating. So, to the extent to the extent that a, that a drug is good or bad, that's another reason why you have to look at the context: is what kinds of behavior is uh, encouraged by the ingestion of that particular kind of drug? Are people encouraged to act stupid and crazy right. and be harmful to themselves and others when they're experiencing the effects of a certain drug? Well, that, then there might be good cultural reasons. Cultural slash pharmacological reasons why it would be problematic or not. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So, right. um, what? Do you have any new books coming out? Oh no, not at this point. How I long did take it of... take you
2: to write this? I'm sorry. How long did it take oh, you?
0: Oh wow. Oh well. Uh, It took me a long time. I got back from the field in 2005, and I was chair of my department at that point. I was chair of the anthropology department here, and so it took me a long time to really get myself down to writing. I, I would write little bits and pieces. I would write a chapter here, a conference paper there, and it wasn't until after I stepped down from being chair of my department that I really contacted the press and started some discussions about it, and at one point, my editor said to me, okay, Lisa, we'd like to step up the public date you think you can have it done by i don't know what it was this was in in january let's just say can you have it done by say march or april and i thought no way but i'm going to do it anyway so i really pushed myself it was having a deadline that really made it possible for me Uh to finish but you see the book is a product of years of writing yeah
2: yeah and and lots of research and like i said i really enjoyed it and i learned a lot and um I recommend it highly to people with, like, specific, like, cultural uh, interest in the area or uh, on, like you said, the whole medical, social. If you're into the medical, the social, the anthropological, the ecological, I, it was very, very enjoyable and um, interesting. So thank you.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Thank you very much.